Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people with dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Today's guest is David Feldman who was born into show business and currently hosts another podcast with Showbiz Studios, The David Feldman Show. But who is David Feldman? We dig deep into his life and career, from growing up watching his influential broadcasting father in New York City, to young David's own stand-up career in San Francisco, his first writing job on the mega-hit sitcom Roseanne, through long-term runs writing late-night comedy for Dennis Miller and Bill Maher, to establishing writing relationships for Martin Short and Steve Martin. His most recent credit was co-creating the Jack and Triumph show for Adult Swim in 2015. Now that Feldman and I are two podcast amigos, let's get to it! David Feldman, welcome to the, welcome to the family. Thank you. I mean, I, you should be welcoming me to the family. We're part of Showbiz Studios. Studios. Yes. <laughs> At least we said that in unison. Yes. Uh, now I I came into Showbiz Studios uh, from the infancy, but you already had a podcast, and you are on the left coast, mm-hmm. the best coast, the west coast. Mm-hmm. And you came back to New York City for a sock puppet. Is that yes, is that I did. Correct? <laughs> and I found uh, some one. people. Some people come to New York for a dream. Some people come chasing a girl. <laughs> you came chasing a sock puppet. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Triumph the Insult Comic Dog, uh, Robert Smigel. And uh, there's a show called The Jack and Triumph Show on Adult Swim, which no longer exists, but we have a new thing that I can't really talk about yet. Okay, but Jack and Triumph did exist, and it's still, you can find it. Yes, it's a great show. It really <laughs> is. And uh, one of the highlights of my career. How, you're... You were a co-creator, of that correct? Yeah, yeah. How did you How did you decide to pitch a live-action show with Triumph and Jack <sighs> McBrayer? Well, so uh, what happened was that Conan sent Jack McBrayer to the Wiener Circle in Chicago when right. he was doing a live show from Chicago. I think this was about three years ago. And they did a great Triumph segment. We're trying. The Wiener Circle is a bunch of African Americans who own a very popular uh, hot dog stand in Chicago that everybody goes to when they're drunk. And the women I've been behind there. the women behind the counters don't take any gruff and or lot, guff, guff or something. And then they a lot of sass. A lot of they're sassy. So Jack McBrayer went there and he couldn't get his order mm-hmm. filled. And then Triumph shows up and talks back to these women and it became a viral sensation and Robert Smigel said you know we should probably try to think of a sitcom with Jack McBrayer and Triumph and so uh, Robert Michael Komen who created Braveheart and Nathan for you Eagleheart at e- what did I say Braveheart the Mel Eagle. Gibson and <laughs> if Bra- he created Braveheart the Mel Gibson movie yes. I would be 
super impressed. Eagleheart. Uh, and we came up with this idea mm-hmm. that was brilliant, and it went on Adult Swim, and you can find it there. And you decided to do that here in New York instead of L.A. because it, of Robert? or yeah, because of the? it's Robert. I mean, it's Robert Smigel. Mm-hmm. So I go wherever he okay. says. And uh, you're originally from the tri-state area. Yes, I am. How... How does this New York experience compare to your first New York City experience? You know, I'm doing stand-up in New York City. Uh, I started in New York. I knew that I had to fail as a stand-up somewhere else. So Mm -hmm. I moved to San Francisco, lived there for 12 years, and never really got to experience the the New York City comedy scene. Okay. And this is the first time that I'm really balls deep in the New York City comedy scene. And I'm getting my ass handed to me, quite frankly. Is I, it, oh, it's hard. Is, it's, that, it's, is it's, that what you imagined it would be? No, because there was a time when I used to do a lot of television. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would come back to New York and I was delusional about where I stood in the pantheon of comedy. I'd come in to do Conan a lot. Okay. So I would fly in, I'd stay at a hotel, and I'd be getting my set ready, and I could get up anywhere I wanted, and I thought, oh, I've got this town locked. Mm. I mean, this is great. This is, uh, and then when I moved here, and I wasn't here just to do my Conan shots, I saw the real New York City comedy scene, and it's hard. Yeah. It is really hard, and I have actually started from scratch. I'm rewriting my act. I'm not rewriting. I'm writing a brand new act. I'm having trouble getting on at all the premier clubs, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm starting from scratch, and it's been fascinating. It's been a really interesting thing to do because the comedy gods are punishing me. I believe in the comedy gods. I think there are comedy gods who we have to answer to and I became a little smug I became a comedy writer and I turned my back on stand-up comedy in a way even though you were writing jokes even though I was writing jokes I was a dilettante when it came to stand-up I thought it came too easily to me Mm stand-up I thought it was I didn't realize that it was an art form and you don't I'm getting my ass deservedly handed to me in Manhattan. So do you feel it's more karmic payback or is it more kind of Book of Job punishment? Hmm. I think both. I don't believe in the Book of Job punishment. I I, I think... Not the Steve Job. Oh, 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 okay. (laughs) The Jewish one. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, for me, it's... I didn't have as much respect for stand-up comedy. I think I've been doing it for 30 years, about 22 years in. I kind of got bored by it. I was Mm -hmm. working the road. I I was a moderate, I'm a moderately successful comedy writer. And I would go out on the road as a dilettante. You know, I have a week off. I'll go play here, Mm -hmm. I'll go play here. And I kind of soured on stand-up because I just found the opening acts to be vulgarians and I just thought there were more interesting pursuits than stand-up comedy and I was wrong. Were you, during this period of your career, were you going out on the road as a headliner or as a feature act? Yeah, headliner. Okay. And And you weren't picking your openers? I'd pick a couple of openers, Mm -hmm. but 
the mistake that I made was I didn't watch stand-up. I didn't, didn't, I was raising a family. I didn't have time to watch Comedy Central and listen to all these albums that are out there. And I didn't pay attention to the young comics coming up. Mm. And I, that, I'm paying a price for that right now, deservedly. There's there's some comedians though who who subscribe to the philosophy that they don't want to pay attention to what everybody else is doing either because they fear they might somehow borrow a premise or they just don't want to get caught up in the competitive nature of it. So they That's... just want to do their job, write their jokes, go on the road, do the show, go go home. Yeah, that's what I've done for nearly three decades. And being in New York, that doesn't work for me anymore. I'm really embracing the scene and learning from the younger comics, which I didn't do before. I I used to hate to watch stand-up comedy when I was in the trenches Mm -hmm. starting out. It was, I I didn't like watching it. How young young were you when you first thought of comedy as a as a career or life path. from i from the time from the time i grew up and i i, I was my father worked in television he started in television in 1951 okay. and i'm reading cliff nesteroff's book the comedians mm-hmm. and they talk about henry morgan who is forgotten he's the henry morgan from mash or yeah he's completely forgotten henry morgan was a radio and tv personality from the 50s and the 60s so my father worked for and was very influential on me. He was, Henry Morgan uh, pissed on sponsors. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 40s, he had a hit radio show that Fred Allen literally sponsored because Henry Morgan had pissed on all his sponsors. He was a real iconoclast who got blacklisted and influenced Steve Allen and Mort Saul and uh, Johnny did, Carson. Did he get inf- blacklisted from the McCarthyism? Because of uh, McCarthyism, but then... No relation. McCarthyism. No, no. Uh, <sighs> but he was, growing up, he was like my father's best friend, and my father worked for him. My father worked for Johnny Carson. My father produced Johnny Carson's first television special in 1968. So I grew up with, like, Pat McCormick, mm. and... Uh, uh, but... Uh, so I set out to be my own man because mm-hmm. I'm not that smart, and I knew I had to go into show business. You were taken from with it from the start. From the start. How young were you when your dad would take you to work? Uh, I was. They were. They were called studio brats back hmm. then, and mm-hmm. they'd just be kids hanging out. Okay. And uh, it was just in your bones to the point where, by the time I was 18, I lost all interest in show business. I'm, 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 I mean, it was the kind of, I was raised where I could tell you what the ratings were of television shows. I could, my father would ask me, you know, what's on Tuesday nights? And I could just tell him what ABC, NBC, mm-hmm. and CBS had on. Kind of a, I, I called myself a video savant. You know, how like a video savant. I was right. a video, I just knew too much about television. And it made me very ill mentally. I was like, and, and it's not a healthy thing to do. And I went off to college and just denuded, stripped myself of show business. I wanted to be a lawyer, I wanted to be any, a professor, anything but be in show business. Where did you go to college? Columbia. Okay, so you didn't go far literally. You were still in New York City. Yes, but, but I- you were gonna, What were you gonna study at Columbia? I was an English major, I wanted to do political science, I wanted to be a lawyer, I wanted to be anything but 
a anything that nothing, I didn't want to be in show business, but I wasn't smart. <laughs> And I realized... Well, you were smart enough to get into Columbia. Yeah. Well, I, yes. And uh, it was easier back then. They didn't allow women when I was going there. Uh. It's much harder now. So I went to an all... It was an all-boys school back mm -hmm. then. So, uh, I, and then, so I realized I had to be in show business because I'm not... I can't go to law school. I can't go work as a journalist. And my, I had a very sick relationship with my father because... Uh, I wanted to do it on my own, and my father kept saying, you have to do it on your own. So the stand-up became a proving ground for me. It was the one thing I knew that my father couldn't pick up a phone and make a call mm. and help me. And so I moved to San Francisco for 12 years. And I, it was, you know, everybody has to have a secret. My secret was uh, my father. And I built my father up to this thing that he wasn't, mm -hmm. but in my mind, you know, and uh, and, I, and I had to make it on my own. Did you? And I did. I did. I made it on my own. Did you give anything else a try before stand-up? I, I wanted to be a journalist. So Did you pursue that at all? A little. Uh, I just found that um, I wanted to be famous, and I liked, <laughs> I, and I thought I was going to get laid doing stand-up, which is but, true. But wasn't... Wasn't journalism Woodward and Bernstein and nah. famous? You could be famous as a journalist. Yeah, not really. I, the comedy appealed to me because you could really—it was sexy. I could women, women like you if you do stand up. So, <laughs> so how did you pick? Uh, how did you pick San Francisco? When I, I knew I had to leave New York. And some friends of mine, Michael Sherrill and Stephen Wattels, we did a trip to California and we stopped off in San Francisco and visited my friend Jeff Rubin who was going to law school and the San Francisco comedy scene was taking off and I remember seeing Barry Sobel at the other cafe and he wouldn't get off stage he was headlining <laughs> and killing what year was this 1983 okay and I thought this is what I want to do and San Francisco is the greatest city in the world and at that time they were making great comedians you know robin was the high priest and there was just a lot of love dana carvey and dana carvey and whoopi and ellen and paula poundstone and i'm leaving so many people out yeah. will durst michael pritchard i mean i i can't even be becky you know the holy cities the san francisco comedy scene you know if you were a beaten dog you moved to san francisco and became a comic and I mean, it just, I'd be, I don't know, maybe I would have been dead. I was drinking and all that kind of stuff. If it had not been for San Francisco, I don't know what I'd be. Now, how much stand-up had you done before moving? I, I got up at Danger Fields. How'd you get that gig? It was my, they had an open mic. Okay. So I went up at four in the morning, <laughs> and I told someone. Was there a sign-up? Yeah, just, yeah. Or just, if you're awake at four, you can go up. Yeah, I remember it vivid. I mean, I remember getting laughs, and I remember it was like, "That's it. This is what I want to do." I found mm -hmm. it was like, boom, and I uh, graduated from college, and then went off to San Francisco, and I stayed there for twelve years, and then I got as good as I was going to get as a stand-up, and then Tom Arnold hired me for Roseanne, which was a big thing for me because I had a my father didn't make a call. Tom Arnold saw. Were, yeah, Tom Arnold. You, in, you got into the TV business without your father. Somehow. Yeah, Tom Arnold saw me bomb at the Improv, 
I swear to God. And the next thing, the phone rings. And he goes, hey, buddy, you want to learn how to write sitcoms? And it, for me, it was like it took, you know, fathers and sons, it's very difficult. So there was a, you know. Well, how did you, how did you get entrenched in the San Francisco scene? What did you, did you have to do a lot of open mics? Or how, how, yeah, long, I mean, did it, how long did it take you before you became comfortable as a working comedian in San Francisco? There's fewer places to get up on stage in San Francisco than there are in New York City. It took me about four years to get an idea of what is funny. A lot of the one of the reasons I am not a big fan of stand up is you'd go to the Holy City Zoo. Mm-hmm. You know, you get off work, go to the Holy City Zoo, sign up at say five o'clock. And you'd hang out, and if you were lucky, you'd get on at one in the morning, which meant you hung out in a comedy club from like five till one in the morning. So eight hours of eight watching hours. other people do comedy. And I used to think, boy, this is not a good use of my time. <laughs> and I like performing. Right. I really do like performing, and I like all these comedians, but eight hours, that's a long, that's a waste of time. So when I became a working comic, mm-hmm. I thought, you know, I've spent so much time in comedy clubs. I want to minimize the amount of time that I'm in a comedy club. So I wrote an act that I knew I didn't have to worry about the opening act doing. Because I didn't want to sit. I always used to watch when I was an opening act a lot of the headliners would watch me mm-hmm. to make sure I wasn't stepping on any of their material. Sure. And I remember thinking, God, what a, I don't want to be a headliner who has to watch the opening act. <laughs> I'm going to write the most right. horrific act imaginable <laughs> so I don't have to worry about any... Horrific? Well, yeah, the, the middle act. <laughs> That's the, how you would describe your yes. early comedy. Is well, I, it still is horrific. <laughs> uh, so I just like to... I, I didn't want to be in the comedy club too long. You know, mm-hmm. I and so over the years, I became not as big a fan of stand-up as I should have been. What were you doing? You said at the beginning you would, you would come from work to the Holy City Zoo. What were you doing for work initially in San Francisco? Pumping gas in Sausalito. Mm-hmm. And then I got a job answering phones at KRON. Okay. Uh, which was a... W- Radio or the TV? Uh, TV. They had a news... They had, KRON News mm-hmm. in the 80s was phenomenal. So there was an opening for me to go into TV news. Like if I stuck with it, maybe I could have gotten a job as you know a news writer in TV. But there was something I just didn't have the the lure that stand up did. There was an honesty to stand up, like something. I don't know. So at at, at what point did you feel comfortable enough with the income you were getting from? comedy, whether it's telling jokes or writing jokes, that you could uh, quit the day job? Uh, quit my day job about four years into stand-up. But the, that, the boom started. So we're talking about the late 80s. Yeah. And then there was this comedy boom, so you could go anywhere. So was that the turning point, that you were getting enough road work? Or? I was getting enough road work, and I didn't require that much. And then I met my wife. Mm-hmm. And then in the 90s, uh, we started making babies, and that changes everything. Right. You can't, 
First of all, I didn't want to be on the road. And secondly, you know, it's just you got to be. And I was, and I decided so to take. And so when Tom Arnold called and offered me the job on Roseanne, it was like it was a no brainer because there was no way I was going to be able to support a family doing stand up. This was like in the uh, mid to mid nineties, mm-hmm. and it, it was the writing on the wall for me was, you know, I'm pretty funny, but I just don't want to be on the road away from my family and I'm not so sure I can make enough to have a have this family so I took I became a comedy writer and when you became a comedy writer did you did you quit for lack of a better term stand-up comedy or were you still getting out at at the club I I was still getting up yeah uh but Making the transition from comedy writer, mm-hmm. from comedian to comedy writer is very difficult because uh, a comedy writer, you do a volume business. You just got to turn, you got to crank out material. Comedians, if you write three good jokes a day and one of them works, you've, you've got 365 <laughs> new jokes at the end of the year. That's a whole new hour. Right. But a comedian is just, a comedy writer, you're just going, here's another one, here's another one, here's, and you got to sit and type, and it's 10-hour days, and uh, learning to be a team player, learning to subsume the ego, it's, uh, most stand-ups can't do it. And also, and also, this was your first comedy writing job was for Roseanne? For Roseanne, and then I, yeah. And if Tom Arnold hired you, yeah. or asked you to come on board, that means Roseanne was already a a mega hit at that point. Yeah, yeah. So what was that like for you, your first day showing up on the lot at the writer's room of a mega hit show with a huge personality star? It was the number two show in America. And I was delusional. I moved my whole family down from San Francisco. Oh, you're still in San Francisco? Yeah. Okay. I thought... They had brought me in to save the show because it was number two, not number one. Even though, even though Tom Arnold called you after you had bombed. Yes, you get more when you bomb. I have to remind myself of that. I have, I for some reason, bombing. I some anyway. Yeah, and then uh, Norm Macdonald was on the writing staff. And Mm -hmm. uh, did you know Norm? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I quickly learned that I needed a lot to learn about comedy writing and then promptly got fired and then went to work for Dennis Miller for 10 years. How did you get that job? I put together a writing packet. Did you know how to do that? Not really. I had done Dennis's show. Dennis had a a short-lived sitcom, a talk show after SNL that failed. And I did... Uh, stand-up on that show. Oh, okay. And and that was at the height of my prowess as a stand-up comic. And I think he was moderately impressed Mm -hmm. by me as a stand-up. So I had a little juice on the packet, you know. But I put together a packet and, uh, you know, and he called me and... We had a ten-year relationship. At, at what point? Uh, at what point did you feel yourself drifting away from the stand-up scene? I know you mentioned earlier 
being on the road and being feeling like a dilettante. At what point did you actually feel that that shift? I'm not sure. Um, I lost respect for it as a craft. I, Were you jaded? or I, I think I was jaded. Um, I wasn't seeing anybody doing anything new or interesting. Uh, I became obsessed with self-education and listening to lectures from the teaching company. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, I know this doesn't make me sound likable at all, <laughs> but I, I just, I, I started grab, I, I had these jobs where I worked for Dennis and then I did five years with Bill Maher. So it be, I, I was in these writing rooms where you had to be informed. Mm -hmm. And so I became an autodidact. Uh, did work, did working for, for people like Dennis and Bill who themselves can, come off as kind of jaded yeah. by society. Did did that rub off on you? Yeah, or, yeah. Or, Look, or did Dennis, you rub off on them? Well, Dennis said, I don't want you watching the other television shows mm -hmm. because then it's going to influence what we write on. I mean, if you the, the, the Dennis Miller Live on HBO show was different from everybody else. It just was. That show was just, it was a, a, a variety, you know, a variety talk show. Uh, I, I would say seventy-five percent of it was written. There was a brief five-minute interview, mm -hmm. but it was comedy intense. It was a lot of writing, right. and he approached c comedy different from everybody else. So there was never any need to watch Leno or Letterman or anybody else. He didn't want us to be influenced uh, by them. So I've, for 10, yeah, I lived in a bubble mm. for 10 years. I didn't have to watch Leno. And then I went to work for Bill Maher on HBO and I didn't know how to write a traditional joke and Bill tells traditional jokes. Right. Dennis didn't. No, Dennis goes off on a rant yeah. and Bill has new rules, it's a, which are very joke yeah. punch. Well, Dennis also tells jokes, but the jokes, the set, there's a setup, and then the punchline drills deeper than the setup. Whereas Bill does more traditional jokes, which is the setup is something you don't know, but the punchline is something you already know. Mm. So you're you're ne the the uh, that's what a a traditional late night joke is, where the punchline is something comforting, and you know that. Uh, Chris Christie is fat. So you can give all this information up front mm -hmm. uh, that makes you uncomfortable, but the punchline is like, you know, I, I'm thinking, trying to think of a joke like, you know, Bernie Sanders says he wants to turn uh, America into Denmark. And you mm -hmm. know who else loves Denmark? Chris Christie, because he's always in the mood for a Danish. You know, so like you may not know that Bernie Sanders loves Denmark, right. but you know that Chris Christie is fat. <laughs> so the traditional yeah. late night joke is, here's something you don't know, here's something you do know, and what you do know is what you laugh at. Okay. And to me, that is great for television. Mm -hmm. Doesn't work in stand-up. Stand-up is completely different from that. 
And then a lot of your other uh, writing jobs have been for special. I've also been specialized, whether it's writing for a roast, yeah, uh, or, or writing for an award show. Those are yeah. those are specialized. What are, what are the what are those joke formats like? Uh, you know, I, uh, I I Dennis gave me Marty Short mm-hmm. when the show got canceled. He goes, "I'm gonna give you a severance package. It's Marty Short," <laughs> and I started writing for Marty Short. And that was a perfect fit for me. And then Marty introduced me to Steve Martin, and then that led to other people, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of specialty writing for heroes and stuff. And then they do award shows and things like that. Right. Steve Martin get, does the Academy Awards. He yeah. needs yeah. monologue and in-betweens. And... and I always say Marty Short, uh, Dennis, Mil- uh, Dennis Miller, um, Steve Martin... And Marty Short are like an orgasm. Mm-hmm. They're never disappoints. You know, like you, you, if you're working with them, or they do one of your jokes, or give you a compliment, so that, that's as good as it, you know. So you didn't, can't improve on it. <laughs> so you didn't have to audition for them per se, or interview like, for for uh, for working for them. Like, well, that's like, or do you? Or, well, that's or a is reputation. Well, because like, you said you, you you portrayed it as Dennis said, I'm going to give you a job right. with Marty Short. Well, you didn't give me. I started writing for Marty mm-hmm. uh, for his like live shows, right? And then, but did, but before you even do that, do you sit down with Marty and and have tea or have lunch and kind of suss each other out? And Marty goes, Yeah, I, no, actually, yeah, you can write for me. No, actually, with Marty, or you can just write for Jiminy Glick. You can't write for the other people. It was about a year before we finally met. It was mostly really? email. It was email, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he was accepting jokes, like, yeah. not knowing then talk not on knowing the, the full David Feldman experience. Yeah. We, then we would talk on the phone. There's some jobs that lately where it's just been Skype. I had a job for jo- <laughs> the, the thing that ruined my marriage was the show. Uh, I did a, sh- a show with Joy Behar for Current TV where I was in my underwear all day. Joy Behar is, you know, homewrecker. My wife would look at me in my underwear in my office. I didn't have to go to work because of Skype and uh-huh. the, you know, the internet. And I'd be in my underwear. I, and I wanted to be in Did my underwear. Have, yeah, because you, you had shorts. You had clothes you could put on. But the idea of being able to work in my underwear, right. was, I just loved the fact that I could roll out of bed, make some coffee, yeah. and stumble into my office at home. In my underwear, <laughs> and worked for a couple of hours. What show of Joy's was that? Was it was on her? Cur- current TV? Current, okay. Yeah, say anything. But getting back to Marty Short, so you funniest man in the world. So you're sending him jokes via email. Well, this was like 15 years ago. I mean, yeah, yeah. But I'm N- just, now I know. But, him. Now right, I, but I, but yeah. I'm fascinated that you sent him jokes for a year, and then you meet him. Yeah. So. What's it like to meet him after you've been working for him for a year? A is little. It... it was like a yeah. It gets it gets nerve wracking. Hopefully, when you when you haven't met them in person, but you've been going back and forth, mm-hmm. talking on the phone and emailing. The first time you meet, it's in a very tense situation, 
like you're either doing an award show or something mm -hmm. where they already have some pressure and anxiety. Yes, so it's less about oh, hi, less about small talk and mm -hmm. more about let's just take the beach here and right. and win this thing. <coughs> what was that first time that you got to meet? Murray? I don't remember. Oh. This is whether well, it was a Letterman appearance because I know his Letterman appearances. He would always there was always a big production. Yeah, I mean I, I've known him for. 50, Marty short for 15 years. So I don't remember the first time we actually met in person. Do you remember the first time you met Steve Martin? Yes, I do. <laughs> yes, I do. What were the, how, and had you worked for him before that? No, no, I remember. So you met, so you met him before you started working for him? Or like, there Well, were, I was writing for Marty right. short, and Marty short is Does, best friends with right. Steve Martin. They're two of the three amigos. Yes. Yes. And I, I, I remember uh, I, there was a benefit in 2008 okay. at a very wealthy home in Bel Air for Obama and uh, blue to red. They wanted to turn six blue, sta uh, red to blue, six right. uh, senators. Al Franken was there, they was running. They okay. wanted to turn these red seats blue, and it was a big benefit. And every, I mean, it. Everybody was there: uh, Catherine O'Hara, Paul Schaefer, Marty was the MC, Ben Affleck, uh, Barbara Streisand, James Brolin. Uh, it, it, it goes on and on and on. Uh, Diane Keaton. Okay. I, I could talk about this forever because it was one of the most amazing nights of my life, just seeing all my heroes. And uh, Marty said to me, uh, I'm going to introduce you to Steve Martin. You know, that, you know make sure, you know. Uh, Are you wearing black tie for this as well? Or because uh, you're. Well, I'm working. Because I don't. Because you're an assistant kind of or right hand man. I wore black tie in my underwear. <laughs> that was it. I, came, I showed up in my underwear. <laughs> no, I, it, was, it wasn't black tie because it was an outdoor event oh, at somebody's okay. grotesquely large liberal backyard. <laughs> And uh, <clears throat> so I, and Bobby Kennedy Jr. was there, by okay. the way. And Larry David was there. Yes. Everybody was there. Right. It was, it was just, you know. All the big Hollywood politicos. Yes. And my jaw was just dropped. So I'm sitting there with my wife and we're eating and I see in the corner of my eye, uh, Marty walking over with Steve Martin. And I figure I'm going to do the Don Rickles thing. <laughs> you're you're going to neg him. Yeah. <laughs> and Marty goes, uh, David, I'd like you to meet Steve Martin. And without turning around, I go, please, Marty, I'm with family. <laughs> you know, the, the, the Don Rickles thing yeah. with Frank Sinatra. And I turn around <laughs> and I see Steve Martin. And I, it was, I just buckled over. It was like, I went, oh, oh. like, the sh it was a shock seeing Steve Martin. This close in the flesh. Yes. And I, and, I, and I didn't think I was going to be taken that way. Yeah. And, and it reminded me, uh, it's, I know this is because of my politics. It, it would, I never met Teddy Kennedy, but the closest I could get to is, is, it would be like meeting Teddy Kennedy mm -hmm. in that Teddy Kennedy was always in your life. 
you know, growing up. Mm-hmm. He was just there. And you kind of took Teddy Kennedy, you, you, just, you always assumed Teddy, and I just remember th- it was like kind of, when you sing Steve Martin, it blew me away. Because they're, they're institutions. They're, yeah, yeah. They're kind of bedrocks of society. So, yeah. So, so, so did he appreciate your your Rickles homage? I think uh, we'll. St- I, I, I mean, obviously, you got to work for him. Yeah, yeah. So, ba- based on my writing, not by my first impression. <laughs> so I, I, w- I will say this. I, I really don't want to, but I will say that one of the highlights uh-huh. of my life has been discussing jokes. On the rare occasion where you could discuss a joke with Marty Short or mm-hmm. Steve Martin and break it down. Uh, it doesn't happen often, but it's his... Do you thank, mem- thank you, God. Do you remember the first joke that you were able to bond with one of those guys over? No. 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 But you can't ask for more than hearing them say why they think a joke is going to work or why they think it's not going to work. It, yeah. it's, it's just... Well, that actually... That actually uh, uh, makes sense for how we're connected. The first time I, the first time I was conscious of seeing you on screen, was you were participating in the green room mm-hmm. with Paul Provenza on Showtime, right? Which was very much that was all about discussing jokes right. with heavyweight comedians, right? Uh, what were you doing on that? Show? I was a one of the producers or creative. Cons- I don't remember what my title was, and it was one of those things where. I took, I love Paul Provenza. Mm-hmm. And I worked on the show because I love Paul Provenza and I, and I love everybody who was booking. I, my job was also to sit in the audience. And, yeah, that's how and, I saw you. Was, <laughs> Paul, fa- Paul fa- would, yeah, Paul would throw to you for like. <laughs> Let's ask failed comedian David <laughs> Feldman, right? And I didn't realize, it's one of those things you, you work on, I can't tell you the number of comedians mm-hmm. who've walked up to me and reminded me of things that I've said uh, during that show. And there were brief little things mm-hmm. that, uh, um, but that was, that was a, that was heaven. That's, that show was, because I, uh, I remember I brought my kids to one of the tapings and I was there when, and my children were there when Kelly Carlin met Rain Pryor for the first time. Mm. My son got to sit with Jonathan Winters and Robert Klein all day, and that's, that's a treat. And I saw, I you know I'm a joke guy. I love Jonathan Winters, especially as a kid. Oh, but, I loved him too. But I'm a joke guy, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, I got to see Jonathan Winters up close, and what a what a. I mean, the guy was just pure, pure, unadulterated comedy. I thought yeah, always he was, like he Gilbert. Was magi- he was magical. It was unbelievable. Yeah. It was unbelievable. What were you going to say about Gilbert? You know, Gilbert. Godfrey. Is, yes. <laughs> Not Gilbert and Sullivan. Gilbert yeah. Gilbert is like pure comedy. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, I, I just, there's certain people who go, well, I'm going to do whatever it takes to be around this person. You know, whatever. I'll just, and Gilbert's one of those people. Uh, yeah. Is that how you've picked writing jobs? Well, there's you need money. Right. But but once you had money and I don't have money. Uh but uh you have st- do you have stability? No. No. 
but um, there, yeah, I, I think if you're going to write for somebody, you got to mm -hmm. love them and then poke them. And if you don't love them, you don't want to poke them. So I have to write for people who I don't. I have to write for somebody who I love. I have to genuinely love who I'm writing for because it's, uh, I want, in my own mind, a kind of give and take that they're not even aware of. But I want to get their approval, um, and then I want to poke them a little and uh, make them think differently and torture them. <laughs> Seriously, like make them read things that won't work for them, but maybe make them think a little differently. So, I mean, it's there's a love. It's a there's there has to be a little aggressiveness, a little hostility. That's how I define love. Right, because well, you're you're picking people you love, and then you're getting the chance to sculpt their legacy. They there you. They're already somebody you love, and then you get to put words in their mouth that reinforce or even heighten their legacy. Yeah, I don't think it's that lofty because I don't <laughs> I don't think about the final product mm -hmm. because the final product I have no control over. So the only thing that I have control over is what I pitch and the reaction I get when I pitch to them. Okay, and then what gets into the act or the show becomes has to be inconsequential because uh, there's no way to control what they do. You know, I always say on a television show, there are two shows being written, the show that we're writing in the room mm -hmm. or with each other, and then the thing that's far inferior that makes it <laughs> on TV, which will never be as funny. The one after network notes. And... Yeah, yeah. And you have to enjoy the 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 show that you're writing that nobody gets to see because that's the only that's where it's pure and funny so you you briefly mentioned that you've got such a project you're working on now yes how how without without getting you in trouble or jinxing anything um how much of this project that you're working on do you think will make it to the screen in the form that you're writing it now? Well, it, it, the, the stuff that I'm doing? Yeah, the stuff that you're doing right now. That's why stand-up comics don't enjoy comedy writing. Very few make the, because if you come up with a hundred ideas mm -hmm. and five of them are discussed and reworked, you're a slugger. Yeah, that's what I hear from people who work for late night shows. Oh, absolutely. The monologue writers especially. Yeah, and so it becomes just a, it has nothing to do with acceptance or rejection. It's you have to answer to yourself, mm -hmm. am I writing to the best of my ability and serving the show and solving these puzzles? And uh, so... The, and when you get into the numbers, they'll kill you. Mm. You know, the Bill Maher show, they, uh, I don't know if they still do, but they have a, they keep count. 
of all the shows. So sadistic. And uh, one year I won. And I said to Billy, he says, that's great. And I said, next year I'm going to lose. And I lost. (laughs) Where where do they keep track of this? Is it on a board or is it just in an email that gets circulated? There's a board. You walk into the writer's room and you can see the numbers staring at you? uh, I think. On a weekly basis? It's there. I I went out of my way not to Mm -hmm. pay attention to it. Okay. Because it was just, it was there, it was with you all the time. You didn't have to see right. it. You just knew you were being counted. I don't know if that's a good idea. Yeah, that just seems sadistic and cruel. It, because, because comedy can be competitive enough as it is, right. but then to actually put it on paper or put it on a board and pit people against each other. It's not the way, well, I don't want to talk, listen, by the way, the Bill Maher show was one of the best jobs I ever had. And I made a, a mistake going to The Daily Show. I should have stayed at, uh, on Bill's show. But a great writing room mm-hmm. is, is where uh, you can't remember who came up with anything. It's just a great cocktail party. I always say it's like a, a beach ball being bounced around, and people, you know, puts their different spins on different things, and mm-hmm. somebody's writing things down. I find there was a show I was working on uh, briefly where they were bringing in young, inexperienced writers, and it wasn't fun because the young, inexperienced writers didn't understand the dynamics of a, a comedy writing room, which is just, it's just a great cocktail party mm-hmm. that you're, you, you've just been invited to a party and keep the party going. And it doesn't matter who came up with anything, just have fun. Mm-hmm. And then one day they brought in, just through the luck of the draw, some older, experienced, pretty successful comedy writers. And the room changed. It was the same room, same table. And the guys who had experience underneath their belt didn't care. They were just pitching jokes, making fools out of themselves, pitching stupid ideas. And we were just laughing. And I read the notes. You know, you have a writer's assistant mm-hmm. taking notes. And everything was brilliant. Everything was funny. And nobody could remember who came up with what. Well, that to me is the ideal comedy writing room where you don't know who came up with what. And that's, so it's not good to keep track and not good to count. You want to create a a room where, you know, I learned this from Dennis Miller. Uh, We would hand in our jokes uh, and the other stuff we had to do anonymously. And he said, I know you're all funny. I don't need to know who wrote what. I, I read these things blind. And uh, so there was like this honor system. Mm-hmm. Well, that was just as brutal because huh. you had to answer to yourself. You, you understand what I'm saying? You'd go home at the end of the, end of the week, of the week, the week, week yeah. and go, boy, nobody knows how I really except for me. And, and that, that can be pretty brutal. When you're, when you be, he kind of made everybody their own boss. Right. I mean, you have to be secure in your, in yourself and your talents, and. Well, you could be, yeah, or you could torture yourself. Right. A lot. I mean, a lot of stand-up comedians are, are 
fed or, or starved based on their ego. So yeah, which can never be satisfied. Yeah. Before we before we wrap up, I I, I don't want to let this go. You said that your 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 time at the Daily Show was a mistake. What? How long were you there? I don't know, less than a year. It was before the strike. Okay. Yeah. I've already talked about that. You can Google it. Wyatt yeah. C- Google Wyatt Cenac. Google David Feldman Daily Show. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, I wish I didn't uh, go there. Huh. I, I, I wish I had stayed at the Bill Maher Show. Okay. I, I, uh, I, I think I would have had an easier... It was a mistake leaving. What did you... What's what's the last big lesson you've learned from from all of these career moves? Uh, what lesson? Yeah. Well, Alex Brazell is teaching me a lot. Yeah. I don't know Your how. Your producer, our producer. Yeah, I don't know how somebody in their twenties can teach a guy in his fifties stuff. Uh. The lessons I'm learning are get out of the house, mm-hmm. uh, which Alex learned from Larry David. <laughs> uh, get out of the house. Go, see, you know, uh, do stand up, get mm-hmm. up. That I knew to get up and do that. Uh, making a phone call and emailing and texting is not as valuable as human interaction. That's, uh, uh, and, uh, those are some of the lessons I've learned because you've recently. De- because you've decided to stay after Jack and Triumph wasn't renewed. Yeah. Because you could have gone back to L.A. or. Yeah, N- New York. I- I'm gonna see what New York. Uh, New York is. <laughs> New York is the only place in the world that is m- when you live here. Mm-hmm. It is more important than everything else it becomes more important than your relationships more important than how much money you have in the bank you come here and five or six things happen each day that blow your mind and you say i have to stay here i'm going broke i can't find anybody to love me i'm struggling with my career but i just walked by a a little store that sells nothing but rubber stamps. <laughs> rubber stamp store. A, a rubber stamp store is an Irish guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he only takes cash. Uh-huh. And it's just this store filled with rubber stamps that he made. <laughs> and I thought, you know, how am I going to leave this town? What's the, what's, the, what's the last great piece of advice you've gotten in terms of surviving in New York as a comedian comedy writer Christian Finnegan who owns QED Mm -hmm. gave me some great advice and he said don't he said just use the rooms to get better don't take it personally if you can't get on one room it has nothing to do with you take what you can get you know use the stage time but don't add up the rooms that accept you and don't accept you this that it's inexplicable and I, I think that's true, and the comedians in New York are pretty great. 
I mean, they really are. Yeah. It's, uh... The other thing I've learned is if a woman is booking a show, mm-hmm. it's better than if a guy is. Women book better shows. They book cleaner acts, smarter acts, especially the male acts mm-hmm. that they book. They book sm- they book smarter comedians than men do. The other thing I've noticed is when I'm on stage and I work to my highest angel but struggle and don't do as well, women will walk up to me after a show and maybe flirt, mm. which is always good. That's always good. Yeah. What's what's the first piece of advice you would give an inexperienced comedy person who comes up to you looking for the answers? Um Well, uh if you think somebody is funny and they're not a murderer, do anything you can to be around them. So Forgive all their trespasses, unless they're, you know, mm-hmm. really trespassing you physically. Be around the people who you really think are funny. And don't be envious, don't be jealous. And stay with the funny people, who you think are funny. And then Mikey Kaplan gave me some great advice recently, which is write the jokes to attract the audience you want. Hmm. Which is not so easy to do if you're not in New York because but you know, but if you if you want to be a smart comedian, write smart jokes. Right. I mean the saddest thing is to see a guy who's been doing it for 10 years and has a modicum of success but can't stand his audience. Hmm. <laughs> you know? And it shows. Yeah. Yeah, cuz you do a certain type, you know. Um yeah. And don't be seduced by money starting out because making a living as a comedian early on, mm-hmm. you'll pick up bad habits. I mean, I still, you know, when I work a club for money, I want to be asked back. Well, a lot of the things you have to do to be asked back are not going to really help your act. Right. You're, you know, to, to make, to get the things that make an audience laugh really hard are not always the best things for comedy. Or the most fulfilling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, David Feldman, uh, I think you're both smart and funny. Thank you, sir. And I appreciate this human interaction. And I'm glad that you got out of your house today to speak with me. And I wish I wore something other than underwear. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. It's an honor. honor. I'm glad I got to do this. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. Theme music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. first.